You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Revelation chapter 19. So we are pretty much at the climax of the book of Revelation, the most important event in human history, you could say, that still has not transpired yet. This is the climax when the sun appears in the sky for all to see. And this is a complex event. Like I said, we've spent a long time building up to this event. All these different things have been going on. We've seen the bold judgments that have been poured out on the earth at this time. The destruction of Babylon, both as a city and a religious system and as the kingdom of the Antichrist. We have the Jewish remnant, remember, that have fled to the wilderness. They're hiding out in Edom in that place called Petra, Bosra, whatever you want to call it. At this time, the Antichrist is moving his forces. The Euphrates River dried up through one of these judgments, the Antichrist is moving his forces to try and destroy that hiding Jewish remnant at this time, and then to take Jerusalem. So this is all the different things that are going on. So anyone who tells you that eschatology is very simple is lying, because there are so many different things going on, and you have to use the whole of the Bible to try and piece them together. Much of this comes from the Old Testament, and what we read in Revelation is really just the, the capstone on that fills in some of the details and shows us how it all ends. But before we get into that, I want to just back up a little bit here, because for us, particularly those of you who have been in the book of Revelation for over a year, we're kind of used to me standing up here and speaking about things like this, the apocalypse, the end of the world, and whatever it may be. But we must remember, it can sound a little crazy when we are outside of our comfortable Christian environment when we speak of these things. And many people would argue that the message we have is a little manipulative, that one day the world will end, you'll be judged unless you do what we say. That's obviously not what we're saying, but that's how it can be presented in a sceptical world. You've probably encountered those sorts of people before. So I want to just have a little look now to really, most of this session will be spent grounding the belief in the second coming to show so that we can be sure that it is not just something that we Christians believe because we read, although that is sufficient, to be frank, with the Word of God, but it is also reasonable and we can ground it in history and fulfilled prophecy. We'll be looking at that a little bit. But I would also say apocalyptic hysteria is actually very common in our world today, and it's not Christians who are doing it. We're not the ones who are creating that hysteria. You may remember, let me just go through a few of these for you. This is Alexandra Cortez, AOC as she's known, when she was pushing her Green Deal recently. She gave the prediction 12 years left, Millennials and people, you know, Gen Z, we're like, the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change, she said in January. You can see on the cloak there, the biggest issue is how are we going to pay for it? So (laughs) you can tell what's going on there. This is just one of many. I'm going to give you a few of these now because I find them quite interesting. The climate change movement has been giving us apocalyptic scenarios for the last 60 years, pretty much, since it became a popular movement. 1989... The Associated Press relayed a warning from the UN Director of the Environment. He said that entire nations will be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels if global warming trend is not reversed by the year 2000. That was another one. 1975, there will be a global ice age by the year 2000. Calder, scientist warned in Wildlife magazine, he said the threat of a new ice age must now stand alongside nuclear war as a likely source of wholesale death and misery for mankind. 2006, you remember this, Al Gore, former vice president, very famous movie, An Inconvenient Truth, or book rather that he wrote. He said that humanity had 10 years left before the world would reach a point of no return. 
And if you've seen that movie, he had these fantastic animations of Manhattan and Florida being flooded and being completely overrun. He was really discredited when uh, a few years later, he purchased an £8 million beachside property for himself. <laughs> that has really discredited his movement there. But yeah, he's still very popular. 1970, Senator Nelson, considered the father of Earth Day. He cited the Smithsonian as his authority. He said that they believed in 25 years, between 75 to 80% of all species of living animals will be extinct. On and on, really, I could go with these sorts of things for climate hysteria. And in this sense, it is true. This apocalyptic talk, in the secular sense, does scare people. We have a big issue today, is what we call eco-anxiety, among, particularly amongst young people, people committing to not having children because the world will not be fit for them and all these sorts of things going on. And, and when we read these, sometimes you can think, well, that's not real. It's not having that much of an effect. But something like 50% of young people are, are scared to live their lives on a daily basis because they're so concerned about climate change. So I would say it's not Christians who have the apocalyptic hysteria trying to manipulate people. I, I saw this the other day. I follow one account on Instagram. It's a real nerdy account. It's called English Church. It's like architecture and old Christian buildings and stuff like that. And I don't really know much about the guy who runs it. He just posts amazing things, usually from around England. And I like looking at them. And he, the, the interesting history from the buildings. And he just posted a message suddenly on his account saying, I'm having to come off Instagram, as people often do for a bit. But his reason was because he's so anxious and devastated by the threat of climate change in the world uh, that he just doesn't know what to do with himself anymore. And I was just reading it, like, oh, okay. That, that's where we are with this, with this sort of thing right now. And one of the things, as you know, when people are scared, when people are anxious, they look for someone to help them. They do. And in this case, it's usually the, the government, and it will usually involve agreeing to finance, regulation, legislation, giving up control, giving up freedoms for the sake, for the promise of, of safety, basically. And that's what this fear-mongering is. So I would again say we're very used to apocalyptic talk, but it is manipulative when it comes from the world. What we are doing here is not fear-mongering. What we are preaching is the message that has been written down in the Bibles for thousands of years before these things ever were even known in this world. It's the message that God told us to preach, and we've been doing that since the church first existed, really. So this is not fear-mongering. This is the message, ultimately, of the gospel. So let me briefly recap what we've looked at last week, and then we'll get into a few more verses today. Chapter 17 and 18, we saw the destruction of Babylon and the, the woman that rides the beast, as they said, which is the system that comes from Babylon. This was the, the government of the Antichrist at this time, this, this government that has taken over the world, controlling the economy of the world, and all these things, was finally destroyed. The scene on earth was one of mourning and weeping, as all these earth dwellers and people who followed the beast are weeping that their, pro their city has been destroyed. And then the scene jumped to heaven, and we saw the praising in heaven. Last week, we looked at the fourfold hallelujahs, which was just the redeemed and the heavenly host praising God for the judgment of this wicked system. And then we had that little interlude where it gave us the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding. The we talked about wedding last week. I showed you how the Jewish wedding lines up with biblical history and earth's history, basically. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 9. We did last week, and then we'll read on to verse 10 just for the context. It says, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. 
for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we see John here, he's so overwhelmed by this vision that he has just received, this ongoing vision, the whole book in many ways, but particularly the destruction of Babylon and then into the heavenlies, the the praising of God, and then the glorious future that awaits us, the marriage of the church, of the bride of Christ to Jesus Christ himself. And he is so overcome with it, he almost falls down and, and just has to express in worship something, but he falls down at the feet of the angel, and the angel, being a faithful angel to the Lord, immediately stops him and says, you don't worship me, I'm, I'm not above you in any way, I'm but a servant of the Most High, as you are, and anyone who holds to the testimony of Jesus Christ, you worship God alone. And this is a very important message, this has always been the message of the Bible, you worship God and God alone. Remember the, the Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, these first law code that we have given to us. He says, then God spoke all these words, Exodus 20, verse 1, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol of any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. It's one of the first commandments. And if you go through the history of religions, what you'll always find, pretty much, every religion, whether it's tribal religions, big, massive religions, Usually at some point there is an image or an idol carved of something that is supposed to be from heaven or something that is supposed to not be. Even some of the great monotheistic religions. Islam, they have that rock that fell from heaven. They have the Kaaba around that they all dance around, circle every year during their pilgrimage. There's always something. That's a very good clue, basically, that you're dealing with a false religion at that time. In fact, the desire for mankind to worship these sorts of things is always evidence of a mind that has rejected God. We see that throughout history. The the Apostle Paul had to warn the Colossians about that. Colossians 2.18, he said, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking your stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. A mind that rejects God will often put something in his place to worship, and more often than not, that is something kind of quasi-spiritual. Angels are a very good candidate for that. You might be aware the angel craze is massive today. Angels are very big business, worshipping angels. You have angel cards and all these sorts of different things. The latest fad is what we call angel numbers. Have you ever heard of them? Angel numbers. So angel numbers are basically any repeating sequence of numbers that you randomly see throughout the day. Now, honestly, there's so many different things about this. You try, try and understand it, but they are... I'm taking this from a Cosmopolitan article, amongst other things that I read. Angel numbers are a sign from the divine, whatever you call it. This is what it says. God, a source for your, your higher self, the universe. They are a sign you're on the right track, a cosmic nudge, affirming that whatever is occurring in your life is meant to be and you're close to a new beginning. And there's kind of a rough guidance, you know, so if you see 111 on a license plate when you're driving past and you're making a decision, you know that's your cosmic nudge. And then what was fascinating about this article, not fascinating, it was actually tragic, to be honest, the example they used, let me read it to you. To get back to you and this cutie from the party, 111 on this license plate is a sign that you're on the right track in being vulnerable and showing up for love. It's like the universe is nudging you to keep going and telling you that you're supported. What sort of a message is that? I mean, honestly, if you see what's going on there, then it ends by saying, so the next time you see an angel number, breathe, 
and offer a little nod of prayer of gratitude. Let it be a reminder that you're never alone and the divine mystery of the universe has your back. Before going to a party <laughs> and doing that. I mean, this is, quite frankly, it's just nonsense, utter nonsense. If I say it, Frank, I have any other words to describe it. But I find it very revealing that it's often Christians who are the ones made to feel stupid for what we believe. We are the ones who are often ridiculed in the public media. We are the ones that are told we have no evidential basis for our faith, etc., etc. But no, you peddle something like this and you get a two-page spread in Cosmopolitan magazine. And that should tell you something. This is a spiritual war. There is something going on behind this. We've talked about it in Revelation. I've called it the unseen war. This is what really is going on in the world. And the mind that looks to angel numbers is a mind that rejects God of Israel, rejects the Messiah, rejects his king, rejects his authority, and thus will go to something else. This is why the Exodus Ten Commandments have this in. This is why Paul warned the Colossians, do not worship angels. This is why I believe very strongly, as John here, who is not really worshipping an angel, he's a faithful servant, but he's overcome seeing this vision that he falls down as in the posture of worship, and the angel even says, no, you get up, you worship God and him alone. And then he says these words, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's one of my favourite verses in the book of Revelation. Prophecy at its heart is designed to show us Messiah, to show us Jesus and I love it because I love the subject of prophecy, but not just end times prophecy, which is often a lot of speculation by different people, but historically fulfilled prophecy too. The two things go very much together. The confidence for the one comes because the other can be proven from history, and that's how the prophets always work. Now, I'm also aware, as I said, standing here talking about the second coming can sound very unbelievable to many people. Often, again... I still don't think it's anything on angel numbers, but still, it's what we have. But it's an unusual belief. This is how it's often characterized in the world. It's just this sort of old belief that these people who believe this ancient religion has. A blind faith of a group of people who have read it in a book, and they need that in their life as a kind of placebo to help them get through this tough world if they think that something better is going to come. I've heard it phrased like that many times, almost sort of mockingly, like, it's nice for you to have that belief. You, you need that in this world. You've all had those conversations probably, right, at some point. That's often how it's presented. Now, I want to make sure that as Christians, we don't actually fall into presenting it as something like that. We want to make sure we can show why we have a good reason, good grounds for believing in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I believe this verse helps us do that. We have to understand this event that we are reading in the book of Revelation here, chapter 19, was told to us by the prophets in the Bible. And these are the very same prophets who told us about everything we know about the first coming of Jesus Christ too, centuries before it happened. Things which we, many of which, can be proven historically now, and they were literally fulfilled. Therefore, the ground for our belief in the second coming is firstly the authority of the word of God, but that can be demonstrated by the historical fulfillment of messianic prophecy. And we're going to go through that a little bit now and tell you what I mean. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So let's look at some of these prophecies. I'm aware I've done some of this with you before, but you can never hear this stuff enough. I've done it many times in my life, and it always fills me with a little bit of wonder and expectation of what God has revealed to us in his word. The testimony of prophecy is the spirit of Jesus. 
or the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, sorry. So what are some of these? What do we know about the Messiah? Now I remind you, every single one of these prophecies, 400 years before Christ, and going back even further for some of them. And that's, remember, Christ is familiar to us. Everyone knows what churches are, not everyone, but generally we know what churches are, what Jesus is, we know this guy who lived in Israel. They didn't know any of that at this time. There was no conception of a person called Jesus Christ at this time. They had a belief in a coming Messiah, and that was from these prophecies. But look at what we were told beforehand. Not just vague things like a Nostradamus-type prophecy. We're told that he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, verse 2. We're told also where he would come from. He would be a descendant of Abraham, through whom all the nations would be blessed. But yet it narrows it down more. We're also told that he would be a descendant of King David. So that is a specific tribe within that nationality. But more than that, we're told he will be from the tribe of Judah. So that's the family line. So he narrows it down three times. It's very, very specific. Genesis 49, verse 10. And then we're also told more about this coming Messiah, that he will teach in parables. You go most places in the world today, ask for one person they know that teaches in parables. Who would they say? Most people were vaguely familiar in some way with the parables of Jesus Christ. He, he made parables world famous. That was prophesied. Isaiah 61 says that he would also preach the good news to the afflicted. Isaiah 35 says that he would be known for performing signs of healing. Psalm 118 says that he would be rejected by his nation, by Israel. Isaiah 53 says that he would bear the sins and suffer in the place of others, i.e. he would be innocent and others would be guilty. And Isaiah 53 also promises that he would be cut off from the land of the living, i.e. he would be executed, he would be killed. In Zechariah 12, we are also told that that execution would involve having his hands and his feet pierced. I'll remind you, crucifixion wasn't even a form of punishment really at this time. They didn't know anything about Jesus, the crucifixion story, the cross, or anything. This is all hundreds, hundreds of years before that. Exodus chapter 12 tells us that all of the above-mentioned things would happen on the day of Passover, the specific day of Passover. Psalm 16 then even goes on to say that this Messiah, once he had been executed by having his hands and his feet pierced on the day of Passover, he would not remain dead. It says that he will rise again. This is the resurrection. Isaiah 42 also gives us a very interesting prophecy that he would then be accepted by Gentile nations. Most people don't mention that. I find that one very specific. I'll come back to that in a moment. However, we are given more than that. You remember we did two weeks in this study, I can't remember, at some point in between the chapters, we did two weeks in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy. We are actually given a timetable for all of these things in the Messiah, the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 tells us that these things, the Messiah, this promised one, for all those things have to apply to, that he would arrive on this earth by the year 33 AD, whilst the temple was still standing. It also tells us that shortly after his death, the city of Jerusalem and that temple would be destroyed. That happened in 70 AD. And these are just a few, that's all I'm going to give you now, just a few of the prophecies, but think about it. If you can name one other Jewish rabbi who lived during that era, 
who fulfilled all of those requirements, who was known for teaching in parables, who did miracles of healing, who preached the good news, who was then rejected by his own people, who died by having his hands and his feet pierced on the day of Passover and then created a stir with rumors of resurrection or historical resurrection, all before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and then subsequently was worshipped by Gentile nations all around the earth. In fact, can anyone name one other Jewish rabbi? That, that's the question. Like, why is it that this Jewish rabbi is so well-known, Yeshua? Because he is the Messiah. All of these things point to us. This is what the verse is getting at when it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He has told us all these things. This is it. Only Jesus. The time is done now. There can be no other candidate for Messiah. The time has passed. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. He told us he had to come before that. So any of these other false messiahs, these other religions that have been started post that date, you immediately know that they're false. They are from the system of Babylon at that point, we could say, because they don't fit any of these requirements that have already been done. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time, at that exact moment that God had preordained and he had planned everything to happen, everything was in the right place, God sent forth his son to fulfill all of those prophecies that no one else could fulfill like that. The probability of that is unheard of. That is what Messiah did. And why did he do this? So that we would know that when Jesus of Nazareth is preached, he is the promised saviour and he is the only one. Isaiah 45 verse 21 to 22 announces this. God says to Israel, who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no God besides me? A righteous God and a saviour, there is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. One of my favourite verses in Isaiah also. And this is why it's so significant that when Jesus Christ calls himself the saviour, his literal name means saviour, Yeshua, Jesus, means saviour. He is the saviour. This is a name that is applied only to God. This is why we see Jesus receiving worship in the Bible. He's not an angel, he is God. This is, this is the thing that we have here. And no one else, there is no other God. God cannot be worshipped, not even angels can be worshipped. God and God alone. And he has made his identity so clear through all of those prophecies so that we can be without excuse. And let me tell you that now, if you don't know the Lord, you're sitting here and you've just heard all this, you are now with, without excuse. You have to make a decision on these things that you have heard. All of this was predicted. It literally, historically came to pass. In another study, I could show you many documents from secular history that corroborate a lot of the story that we've just gone through in Messianic prophecy. That's very fascinating too. But we can do that. The same prophets that predicted all of those things to do with the first coming are the same ones who told us everything we know about the second coming. Therefore, we have good, logical reasons to believe what they say will also come true because everything else they said has already come true in the past. That is an empirical evidential basis we have for the belief in the second coming. So let's get into it. Now remember at this time, the world is pretty, pretty devastated. You've had the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. Babylon and the city is destroyed. You have this Jewish remnant hiding out in this, this rock city in Petra, the rest remain in Jerusalem, and there's probably a few others of followers of Jesus scattered around at this time, any who have survived. Remember, about halfway through the book of Revelation, Satan was thrown down to earth, and it says he came down with great wrath. 
He was furious. He sees his chance as being ruler of the world crumbling before his eyes. Babylon, his base of operations, has just been destroyed. In one final desperate attempt now, he gathers his forces, called the earth dwellers throughout this book of Revelation, those who are loyal to him, who have taken his mark throughout this time, and he gathers them together to try and wipe out those remaining Jewish populations and those who are still naming the name of Christ as king. That is an affront to him, you see. That's why he does that. But very shortly, we're about to see the true king come in the sky. This is the believing remnant at this time. It seems dire. It's almost like in the movie, you know, that they always make. It always seems to be this. The good is pushed right to the end. Looks like all hope is lost. Everything's done. At this point, you've got this little remnant hiding at one place and the armies of Antichrist coming to destroy him. There's no way they can stand against him. And that is the darkest part of the night. But as we've said many times, that is usually when the light starts to show. And that is exactly the scene that we have going on here. So let's look at it in verse 11. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems in his name. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. The heaven is opened right at the final moment. And this comes with cosmic disturbances, as we read in the book of Matthew. Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And I believe the sign of the Son of Man is the Shekinah glory of God. It's that bright light that is so bright you can't even look into it. And you imagine the universe is dark at this point, the stars have stopped giving their light, and then all of a sudden the Shekinah glory of God breaks forth. So there's so many passages that speak of the Old Testament, not just Revelation 19. We have to read them all to get a full picture of what is going on. The heaven is opened, the Son of Man appears, the glory of God is shining from him like no one's ever seen before. And John tells us at this time that he's riding on a white horse. And this is interesting. Remember in Revelation 6, to go all the way back to the first seal judgment, the beginning of this time, this final period of history, we saw someone else arrive on a white horse, but it wasn't Jesus. It was what we called the Antichrist. He was the counterfeit. Remember, he was cop- you see why he came on a white horse now. He's an imitation. Everything we've seen him try to do is to imitate the, the ministry of Christ, to put himself in the place of Christ. He was one that came to the earth craving power, craving the worship of the world. He rose to power through intrigue, through deception. He made false treaties. He broke his word. He ultimately desired to be the ruler of this world, and he enforced it by force throughout this period. That was the first person we saw coming on a white horse. But now at the end, we see the true king coming in all that majesty and splendor that rightly belong to him. So you have the contrast, the first rider and then the second rider. The first was false, the second is going to be true, and no one will come after him. It reminds me very much, though, just from, I like to use history, two other examples of people who entered Jerusalem on a white horse. I've probably shared some of these as one of our Hanukkah studies at one time, but let me go through them again because they're fascinating. 1898, Kaiser Wilhelm II. You know him, he was the last emperor of Germany and the king of Prussia. He visited the Holy Land. He visited Jerusalem as a guest of the Ottoman Sultan. And he, he demanded fanfare for this event, basically, which the Sultan duly provided him. So they cleaned up the city. 
They demolished the rundown buildings near the Jaffa Gate. They tidied up the Temple Mount. They repaired the water system. They built fresh markets. They whitewashed all the bad-looking buildings. They even had to enlarge some of the gates of Jerusalem so the Kaiser and his entourage could fit through. They hired the, Sul the Sultan hired Thomas Cook, travel agent, at this time, to be in charge of his visit. He was charged with building a luxurious tent encampment for the delegation. And all of these tent cities were then, they borrowed, whether borrowed means they went and took, well, I don't know, all the, the family, the fittings from rich families in Jerusalem's home. They would take all their carpets and their rugs and they went and put them in all these tent cities for the Kaiser as he was coming to Jerusalem. And on the same day, they had all of the, the Sultan had all of his troops round up any beggar, any poor person, any wild dog, and they shipped them all out to the outer districts. The Kaiser then, on the day of his entry, him and his wife and his delegation rode grandly into Jerusalem, and he had his gold helmet with his, all his regalia on, and he was sitting upon a white horse. And he knew what he was doing. The local legend at that time was that Jerusalem would one day be ruled by someone on a white horse. It's fascinating. That was a legend. Little did they know it was actually a biblical prophecy. But the Kaiser here is putting himself in that position, he sought power. He was trying to basically increase German presence in the Holy Land at this time. The glory and prestige. This reminds me very much of that first rider on the white horse in Revelation. He wanted Jerusalem for himself too. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted people to greet him in the streets, the world to come to him. That's what, the, that's what Satan has always done. This, for me, gives a very good human parallel to the sort of thing we're seeing here. However, it wasn't a legend. It was, in fact, a biblical prophecy and it was not going to be the Kaiser who fulfilled this. Now, interestingly, he wanted more German presence in Jerusalem. And what happened a few years later after this? So this was 1898. A few years later, the world would be plunged into World War I. Kaiser Wilhelm was the person who took the German nation into that First World War. And as you know the history, that was the end of his empire. The German Empire, the King of Prussia, that was done after that time. He himself had to abdicate his throne, and he fled into hiding for the rest of his life. Oh, I like that. It's what happens when you ride into Jerusalem on a white horse, taking honour that is not duly belonged to you. A few years later, at the end of that war, so about 1917, the British government at this time issued what they call the Balfour Declaration. This is the, the government's intention to establish a national homeland for the Jewish people in what they were calling Palestine at that time. This began setting the stage for the restoration of Israel. The city of Jerusalem had been occupied by the Ottomans, the Ottoman Caliphate, for the last 400 years. But in December, the Ottomans were fighting with the Germans again uh, at this time. In December 1917, the city of Jerusalem was liberated from the Ottomans, and the Caliphate crumbled, really. And the story of how that happened is interesting. I'll share it with you. The man who did this was a person called General Edmund Allenby. He was a British general at the time in the, in the British War. He had been given explicit orders by the British government, Prime Minister David Lord George, both of these people were Christians, believers in the Messiah, to capture Jerusalem as a Christmas present for the nation, the British nation at this time. A Christmas gift for the nation, he called it. Allenby was a, a devout Christian, follower of the Bible, and it was reported that the night before the invasion, he went to his dwellings and he prayed, and he was praying specifically that he would be able to accomplish what he had been charged to do, but he would do it without destroying any of the city or the holy places in particular in Jerusalem. 
So he wired London for instructions, and someone, we don't know who it was really, received his wire, and they sent him a, a scripture, Isaiah 31 verse 5. And it says, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also he will deliver it, and passing over he will preserve it. So Allenby obviously was very excited about that. He gathered all of his troops there on the outskirts, and he read this to them. They were positioned in the foothills of Jerusalem. Foothills of Jerusalem. And what he did is he decided, taking that, the queue of birds flying over defending Jerusalem, he gathered every available aircraft that he had at his disposal. And there wasn't many at this time, obviously, remember. Like, it was a few of the Allies, they had old planes. On the morning of December the 10th, he had as many planes as he could get fly very low over the Temple Mount, and they dropped flyers. And on these flyers, it said, surrender immediately, you don't have a prayer, signed General Allenby. And this is where it gets kind of slightly like divine intervention. The Turks, the Ottomans, they believed in an old prophecy due to for their culture, Islamic culture, that they would not lose the holy city until a man of Allah came to deliver it. And of course, they couldn't really, the writing obviously in these flyers, Allenby, Allah in Arabic means God, and Bey in Arabic means son. So they were looking at a demand to surrender signed by what they understood as someone called Allah Bey, the son of God. And this is, I'm not joking, this is actually what, this is recorded what happened. In response, they hoisted a white flag, they surrendered the city, and there was not a single shot fired, just as Allenby had prayed. And then on the 11th of December, 1917, the general rode up to the Jaffa Gate, just like the Kaiser had done years before him. But as he approached the Jaffa Gate, he stopped, he dismounted from his white horse, and you can see there, he decided to walk into the city on foot. And when he was asked why he did this, it's because he was a believer in Jesus, and he felt unworthy to ride into the holy city as a conqueror. As a conqueror. He knew that that honor was reserved for one person and one person alone only. And he referred to Revelation chapter 19. There will be a conquering king who comes riding on a white horse to Jerusalem, but it is not me. And that, you can show the difference between the mind of God and the person who wants the praise for himself between those two white horses. And for me, that's a very good historical illustration of exactly what we're seeing in Revelation. The rider on the white horse who came at the sixth seal, and now the true rider on the white horse who comes at the end of the book of Revelation. Let's get back into the text. It says, He who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He's called faithful, the faithful martyr, the faithful witness in Revelation. He's called the truth many times throughout the entire Bible. These qualities are inherent to his being. Therefore, what follows from that is he is totally righteous. The execution of his judgment is perfect. That means there are no immoral motives for his judgment, no lust for power, no craving appreciation, no trying to gain something that's not his, like, all we, like most human conquerors that we see and read about in history at some point. Even as great as some of them may be, there's always that human element that comes in there, that sin nature, but not so with this rider on the white horse. He is the only one with the character and the authority to judge in such a way. 
Psalm 96, verse 11, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all it contains, let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and his people in faithfulness. You see, this has been written long before the book of Revelation was written. This was mapped out for us throughout the Old Testament. It's always been God's message. It says his eyes, back in Revelation, are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. His eyes are a flame. You remember back in chapter 1 of Revelation, where John sees that vision of the glorified Lord. If you can remember when we studied it all the time ago, he saw this vision, and it was very similar to what we see here. Revelation 1, verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. This is that amazing vision that we get of the glorified Lord. His eyes see everything. Nothing is hidden from them. This is the risen, glorified Lord. And I like this because it, it reminds us the days of allowing man to spit on him, to flog him, to crucify him, the days of allowing mankind to blaspheme his name have now come to an end. And it says in Zechariah that when he comes as this conquering risen king, there will be only one name, only one king, and it's his, and no one will be blaspheming his name then. I like that. It says on his head are many crowns, diadems, so that's a royal crown. This is again emphasizing his kingly authority here. And again, the contrast. Jesus was on this earth at one point before, and he did wear a crown. Remember what crown that was? It was a crown of thorns that was placed on his head, by Roman soldiers mocking his kingly authority as he was beaten and drew blood on his head. And also we know that that was also a picture of what Christ was doing for us, thorns being very specific in the Bible. Thorns, if you read about it, appeared on this earth in Genesis chapter 3 as a sign of the curse that the entrance of sin brought into this world. So placing that crown of thorns on the Messiah's head is symbolic of the fact that he is placing sin on the Messiah at that point, teaching us through those types of what is happening, what Jesus was doing on that cross as he did that. That is a true king, not one who, who, one who is powerful, but one who also lays down his power for the sake of those he loves. And that is why he has the right to rule. This is what Jesus did. But here it says he now has many crowns. And I think the contrast again is that we've seen the crown he wore the first time, and then we've seen in the sub subsequent history of the earth many people wearing many crowns trying to rule. We've even just seen the book of Revelation, the beast, remember, rises. And on his ten governments, it says that there were ten crowns. Seven heads, seven crowns, ten horns, and all that. You remember that really confusing bit? That was all about crowns. Now, we see here, the Messiah comes, and it simply says he has many crowns. I think the idea that's being given to us here, he has all the crowns. Every part of kingly authority is now taken away from anyone who does not deserve it or has usurped it or has taken it, abused it. And here, the rightful king wears all the crowns. Every part of his kingly authority will extend to every part of his kingdom now as he arrives to take the throne. It's an amazing picture. The king of kings has all the crowns. Psalm 47. For God is the king of the earth, of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. It also says that on him he has a name written which no one knows except himself. And this is an interesting part because not many people, you know, that doesn't tell us much, does it? It's quite hard to comment on that as a Bible expositor. But for me, what this is really getting at, 
all the names that we have of Jesus Christ in the Bible, many of them from Revelation particularly, they all tell us something, don't they, about his character, his mission, his purpose, his attributes, something like that. And names throughout the Bible always do that. So what this is basically saying, I believe, it seems to imply that at this final revelation, remember this is the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, at this final and ultimate climax of the unveiling, something that was previously unknown about the Messiah, something that has not been revealed in any way, shape or form throughout the written word, will now be revealed to us. And it will be written on him somewhere, we don't even know yet. A further unveiling of his wonder and majesty, probably something more than we are even capable of receiving or understanding right now. One day we will see him in all that sort of glory and revelation that he has when he is fully unveiled. And that's where we're going to leave it this Sunday. Right, I know I'm sort of leaving you right at the peak there, but there's just too much in the next section to try and squeeze it all in. But I want us to leave with this challenge. And I said this earlier. Our belief in the second coming is grounded in the belief of all those prophecies that he fulfilled in the first coming. And if you cannot find another person who fits that criteria, then you can't just dismiss this. We have a very serious question to answer. If you know the Lord, it's slightly different from if you don't know the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, you have to answer that question, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the Messiah? Because one day he is coming back, he is the king, and unless you can disprove all of his fulfillment of those first prophecies, then you need to have an answer to this. And for those of us who have already had that answer, but are living our lives now, what does it mean for us practically on a day-by-day basis? Are we seeking the things that the king seeks, that he wants us to seek? Is our mind focused on his coming kingdom, or are we focusing on the kingdom of the world? And that's a question I'll leave with you to answer. Let's pray. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.